This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial subsidiary. Commercial subsidiary. Of the BBC. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In the Chimps film, there's a scene where one of the younger males has done something rather bad involving the, the alpha male, and he seeks his forgiveness. And it's a very low-key scene that the younger male just sort of walks up to the older male and he sits down beside him and kind of looks at him, wants to get eye contact and just say, do you forgive me for what I've just done? And the older male just won't look at him. He just, it's as if he's saying, I don't even register that you are in my presence. You're not worth it. And he walks off and this younger male looks utterly broken. He drops his hands and his head and he's sitting there like he's... You sort of feel for him, but as images, it's nothing, but within the story, it's immensely powerful. Welcome to the BBC Earth podcast, the podcast that tries to heal old wounds and rebuild burnt bridges. The podcast that knows that blood is thicker than water. Those social species are are so interesting because what you get in those family groups is either a very tightly bonded group battling against the world outside or you get rivalries and jealousies within that group which can split the group apart. In either case you get a very interesting dynamic going on. This week we're gathering round the fire with the family around us. Well, gathering round the watering hole or the ancestral hunting grounds or wherever it is that animal clans gather. Our theme today is family. Mothers and fathers and pups and cubs, kids, kits and hatchlings, aunts, uncles, cousins and all the rest of them. We're looking at the bonds that bind us so tightly to our own flesh and blood and the family feuds that threaten to tear it all apart. One man who's learned a lot about the ups and downs of animal families is this man. I'm Rupert Barrington and I'm the series producer of Dynasties. Dynasties is the latest BBC Landmark series, and we've talked about it a lot on this podcast. Four years in the making, with two years on location filming, five episodes, following a troop of chimps in Senegal, an enormous emperor-penguin colony in the frozen Antarctic, a pride of lionesses on the Maasai Mara, warring tribes of painted wolves in Zambia, and an embattled tigress, raising her cubs in the lush forests of India. Family drama was at the heart of every episode. One of the ways in which we selected the animals was that these are animals which, by the title, obviously create dynasties, and their long-term aim, you could say, is that their sons and daughters or their grandchildren will inherit that world, so they they sort of create a kingdom, and and those are really high stakes to fight for. We've done quite a few of these landmarks, and they always have the same format, which is a load of different stories of different animal species from different places around the world. And I think as a film crew, you'll go and film an animal for, say, a month, and you always come away feeling that there's an awful lot more to those animals' lives that you don't have time to see and and, and film. So we thought, well, why not effectively take a sequence and explain 
exploded out over two years and we will follow those animals that huge period of time. And we hope that by doing that, we'll be able to see much more depth and get a real sense of what their lives are actually like. It's a very rare opportunity for, you know, for anyone, whether you're a filmmaker or a scientist or anything else, to spend that much time with a wild animal and to really get that insight into their lives. So the producers, the, the camera ops, got more connected to those animals than I've ever seen before. If you spend as much time as we did, there's a good chance you're going to see things that even the scientists haven't had time to observe. So there's a couple of scenes in Painted Wolf film, for example, an amazing scene where they need a new leader, and what the team saw was this extraordinary sort of singing, howling. But that was a moment no one's ever seen before. There's another section in that film where the team filmed Painted Wolves struggling to hunt the normal prey of Impala, and instead they turned their sights on um, baboons. An individual baboon is much bigger than an individual painted wolf and it's very strong and very dangerous. But for the first time ever, they saw a painted wolf pack working out how to bring down baboons, which again has never been seen before and the producers co-writing a scientific paper on it. It's really exciting. In a way, that, that's the gold dust of this job, I think, to, to see something no one has ever seen before. That's what you always hope you'll get and it's rare. Family is a world, whatever your own family is like, it's a world you understand more than any other aspect of the world and so you see things there that you understand. I guess it's extremely relatable. You know, Families do have rivalries and, and power battles or they do help each other out in times of crisis and you know, animals to one level or another do that as well. And often in those situations, as you saw, say, with the painted walls, the big threats come from within that family. Someone else within the family wants to take over or wants to form their own dynasty. So it's really that tension about who is in charge and how long you can hold that world for, for the sake of your offspring and their offspring. Once you talk to the experts, you understand how chimpanzee society works. It's all about having the right allies. And so they, they mutually groom and they, they form this alliance. And can you call that a friendship? And in a sense, you can't. You can call it an alliance because that's what it is. But friendship... Who knows if you can ever say that in nature. Quite, I think nature's probably a bit more pragmatic than that. We talked about not anthropomorphising. I think it's a really easy trap to fall into without realising you're doing it. You, you write a commentary line and you step back and think, hang on, that's just not that's not about animal behaviour, that's about a human interpretation. And David Atten was very good. He kept a very sharp eye on that. Well, for example, somewhere we say there's a, a painted wolf called Tate knows that a certain part of the landscape she lives in is dangerous. Now, we know that she knows because she's lived there and she's met the lions who are the big danger. It's very easy to assume an animal knows something or thinks something or feels something without being certain that they do. There's a scene in the Painted Wolf film where they appear to be mourning. Their demeanour changes completely. Their heads go down, their tails go down, they walk in single file for hour after hour. And it's not like any behaviour our team saw from them anywhere else across two and a half years. Now, you cannot say they feel emotional, they're mourning, because we don't know. But you, I think it's fair to question whether they might be. I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Families can be pretty tight units, sticking by each other through thick and thin. But what is it that keeps them together? In humans, you might answer that it's love, familial love, wellsprings overflowing with unconditional love for your offspring, however much trouble they cause. And there's something a bit magical about that. All animals, human or otherwise, are pretty risk-averse, avoiding danger wherever they possibly can. But parents, human or animal, 
will put themselves in the direct line of near certain death to protect their offspring. They'll round on predators they'd normally run from, take on enemies twice their size, stand their ground. Of course, this isn't really magic at all. It's something much more amazing. It's biology. The biology of the parent-infant bond. Evolutionarily, we normally consider that social bonding has arisen from mother-infant bonds. My name is Tony Ziegler. I work at the University of Wisconsin in the National Primate Research Center, and I am a distinguished scientist here. So the things that play into this are our sensory system. We're talking about smell. Many species are recognized by their odors. They recognize their mother even when it's in a herd. Touch. When a mother's stroking her baby, she's releasing oxytocin, a bonding hormone. Hearing. Infants are recognizing their mother's voice even before they're born. The sound of the infant, these cries are critical to the survival of an offspring because they're helpless. Vision. Mammalian offspring don't see well when they're first born, but babies are made to be extremely attractive. Their large eyes, very round faces, their small noses, they're just attractive. Taste is the last one. You wouldn't think about taste being involved, but it is in, say, rodents, and even in some primates, there's a lot of licking of the urogenital areas that are stimulating this bonding. The brain processes all our sensory signals from the outside. And what we find is there's a lot of interactions of different hormones occurring in the brain, the prolactin that's occurring pre-birth, increasing estrogen, progesterone during the gestation, the oxytocin, once the offspring's there. All these hormones work to facilitate this attraction and this bonding. Of all the hormones swilling around in parents' bodies, one of the most interesting is prolactin. Prolactin is a hormone, like it sounds, prolactation. It's actually evolutionary, extremely old, and has many, many functions in the body. But one of them is that it sort of facilitates the whole maternal and paternal care. And don't fall into the trap of thinking that a flood of bonding hormones is reserved only for the mother. In species that form long-term pair bonds between male and female, the fathers get a huge wave of it too. We know that fathers in pair-bonded species will also be getting signals from their mate that's sort of preparing them for the bonding experience. I'm going to mention the penguins because they are species that show care of infants after birth and they will both have increases in prolactin while the female is carrying the egg and incubating. Fish have this too, the male fish, in species where the male takes care of the offspring after they hatch, uh, prolactin is also involved in that. I've spent a lot of time studying New World monkeys Uh, marmosets and tamarins. They live in family social groups in the wild. They're from South America, Central America. 
The father is critical to the survival of the offspring. What we know about them from our studies are that the father is picking up on cues from the mother that she's pregnant, and the father actually starts gaining weight. He'll start packing on pounds as she's gaining weight throughout the pregnancy. And we know this is due to prolactin increasing in the fathers. They also have higher estrogens, they have oxytocin, they have different hormones that are progressing that will direct him and, and make him more maternal once the infants are born. I find it amazing how physiologically male and females are identical. Just tweaking hormones can have a profound effect on what we think of as male and female. So for instance, in our marmosets, right under the arm is where the nipple is. And when the female's pregnant, the father suddenly gets enlargements of these nipples. But I find that fascinating. And then there's an African fruit bat and the male bat actually lactates after his offspring are born. Males are really prepared to parent in more ways than we would even think about. I had published a paper about the marmosets and tamarind, the dads gaining weight. I was getting constant calls and questions because so many human fathers were identifying with this increase in weight during their mate's pregnancy. While it's not quite the same, uh, males, humans, fathers, for almost the first year after their offspring are grown, their, their testosterone's lower, their prolactin's elevated, especially early on. So there's a lot of similarities that the fathers are getting these signals as well in humans. If you're a marmoset or a human father who's worried about the sympathy weight you've gained when your partner got pregnant, don't worry. There are really great benefits to being a good, attentive dad. Well, in marmosets anyway. We would look at fathers when they heard the sound of an infant distress cry. They would have to cross a bridge to another cage to look for the source of that. And the fathers that would do that, we considered very responsive because they were right there to make sure they could save the baby, so to speak. Those fathers always showed a better survival of their offspring. Their offspring thrived better for those fathers that are, are very, very, very responsive directly. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the BBC Earth podcast, and today we're bringing you stories about family. It seems perfectly natural that you'd care about your family. After all, our offspring are fundamentally part of us, the only fragment which will survive our death, and when all's said and done, the only real legacy we leave behind in a world which will soon forget us. But caring about your children isn't actually a foregone conclusion from an evolutionary perspective. Lots of animals, complex, intelligent, successful animals, don't care about their young at all. They lay their eggs and saunter away, never to think of them again. And some species that you wouldn't expect to care are actually pretty diligent little parents. I'm studying parental care in a beetle called a a bearing beetle. They're native to the UK. They're quite pretty. They are maybe about two centimetres long. They're they're black with orange spots on the wings. And they're actually surprisingly common. So if you find a small carcass in the woods, you turn it over, then sometimes you'll find these beetles there. You might not see them in the middle of the day, but certainly at dusk and dawn they they should be around. That's Per Smithett. So my name is Per Smithett. I'm a reader in animal behaviour at uh, the University of Edinburgh. They breed on carcasses of small vertebrates because there are other scavengers out there like foxes or birds, so they will protect it by burying it on the ground. So that's why they're called burying beetles. And they can bury it several centimetres down into, into the ground. They're very, very strong. They can even move the mouse several metres if they have to, and they will excavate the soil from underneath the mouse, and then the mouse will sort of drop into that hole they're generating. They live inside the mouse, so in a way the, the mouse is the nest and the food. The parents will create this little depression on the top of the mouse and that's where the larvae crawl to when they hatch. Beetles normally don't provide care. The females will just lay the eggs. The eggs will just develop on their own. The larvae will fend for themselves. In this species both the female and the male actually will stay behind and look after the young. They will even provision food, the pre-digested carrion that they feed back to the larvae. The larvae even beg for food from the parents and uh, this is quite unusual for insects. So it's not like in birds where it's a vocal or visual signal. You don't see them open their mouths, they don't make any noises, it's, it's all quiet. But they've got small legs and they kind of tickle the parent, if you like. The parents will have lots of sensory hairs on their bodies, so they, they can sense this. Then the parent will regurgitate pre-digested food to them. So this is really quite, quite unusual among insects. Probably the main reason we think that some insects evolve parental care has to do with the resources that they use for breeding. So if you use a resource like carrion, which is very valuable if you can find it, but very difficult to find, maybe you need to evolve parental care as a way to protect it. If you do have parental care and parents are looking after the young, it means that the offspring can take longer to develop. So there's more opportunity to develop a larger brain and therefore higher intelligence. But I'm not so sure this is quite the case in the insects as much. 
but certainly that's I think it's quite possible that this is the case for for vertebrates like birds and mammals. It's very difficult to know what these beetles feel. They don't have a facial expression. It's very difficult to understand their emotional situation. I'm, sh I'm sure they have emotions of some sort, but they might not be the emotions we recognize. They're obviously caring, they look after the young, and they must have a drive to do that, some kind of psychological mechanisms that uh, motivate them to do this. But to understand them or to know what these uh, emotions are like, I think is really quite difficult. The joy of a family, particularly attentive parents, is that they can provide much-needed support when we're at our most vulnerable. The tragedy is that if this support gets taken away, it can be completely devastating. Sometimes we only appreciate how much we lean on our parents, how desperately needed they are, when they're taken away. Every one of the chimps has lost their mothers minimum and generally they will have also lost family members because whoever adults are in the group at the time of the hunt will be killed and any of the babies will be taken. There was a pretty rampant bushmeat trade which basically is people hunting chimps to eat. So they would hunt the adult chimps and when they would come across the babies they sell the babies as live pets. So those are the chimps we are receiving. They all do come in, of course, severely traumatized, but Connie, Connie came in, he had a broken wrist. He also had shrapnel from the bullets that had been used to kill his family were embedded in his body in various places. His hair was falling out. He was emaciated and totally dehydrated. He was extremely depressed. I mean, he, he basically laid on the floor for three days. We couldn't even get him really to eat or drink anything. So it was a very, very, very intensive situation just to basically keep him alive. My name's uh, Jim Desmond and I'm a veterinarian and co-founder of Liberia Chimpanzee Rescue and Protection. And I'm Jenny Desmond, better known as Jimmy's wife. <laughs> Um, and I am also a founder of Liberia Chimpanzee Rescue and Protection. Jenny and I have been involved with great ape and primate sanctuaries for almost 20 years now. And um, back in 2015, some people got in touch with us asking if we were available to go and do crisis management for one month. The backstory to Jim and Jenny Desmond being in Liberia takes a little explaining. Back in the 1970s, there was an American research project set up in Liberia, testing hepatitis vaccines on chimpanzees. And they set it up here in Liberia because there was a steady supply of chimpanzees that had never been exposed to these vaccines. It operated for around 30 years before the project ended in 2006, leaving the question of what to do with the chimps. Too dependent on humans to release into the wild, but very expensive to care for. The chimps were moved onto some small river islands nearby, where food and water were provided daily. But fast forward 10 years, and the funding to care for them dried up. They abruptly cut off funding and basically left the chimps to die, to starve to death. So then a whole coalition of organizations led by the Humane Society of the United States got involved and started raising money and awareness about the plight of these chimpanzees. And then shortly after that, they called us to come over and do crisis management. So we arrived in July of 2015 
to help those research chips. We were supposed to be here for about a month, I think five weeks. And while we were here, two chimpanzees came into our care. They were not from the research. They were actually rescued from the bushmeat and illegal live pet trade in Liberia. Somebody heard that we had chimp experience and we were here on the ground. Very shortly after, a third came into our care. And we, of course, started getting reports of more and decided to start a sanctuary in Liberia because there was not a sanctuary here. And before we knew it, I think we had 13 chimps within the first year and a half or so, um, which was pretty crazy. We have our house, which is just a house, and, and the chimps are in the house at night with us. And then outside in our yard, there are several trees, large trees, and we've built platforms and hang ropes. And, you know, it's basically trying to substitute what they would have in a forest. What we try and do here is we try and sort of simulate as best we can what their life would be like in the wild. You know, a young chimpanzee in the wild, you know, the first year of their life, they're pretty much physically attached to the mother 24-7. They would really never not be in physical contact with the mom. So we provide 24-hour care to the little ones up until about age two to two and a half. Big girl standing up and crawling around. Big girl. They're literally attached to you. They sleep with us. They sleep in the bed with us. They go with us everywhere. You big girl standing up. It's pretty crazy. You 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 have a chimp attached to you pretty much all the time, if not more than one. Big brother, what a good big brother you are. It's twenty four seven. I mean, it's really nonstop. In the wild, baby chimpanzees never cry because they never need to cry. We can't be their mothers, we can't put them back in the forest, but we don't want them to cry either. So we try and make sure we meet almost every need that we can. At all times. So if they're upset or they're stressed or they get hurt or you know if they're afraid or anything like that. So that's what we try and provide for them. Connie is a good example, especially because he's gone through all of the levels of the process. It took him quite a few days, basically just sat next to us 24-7, I carried him around with me when he would let me. When he first started eating, I would have to eat something first and then give him a piece of it because he didn't trust even food I would hand him. And he would sleep in the room with us and slowly but surely, you know, we gained his trust. He eventually came around and we were able to introduce him to the other chimps. and. Once he came out of his shell, he became a real character. He's, he's one of the, the funniest chimps we have. He's extremely intelligent. He can do pretty much everything. He turned into this amazing little person. He shows the resilience they have and also the importance of gaining that confidence back in order to function and, and move forward. I think for us, any animal in our house is part of our family, regardless of the species. But with the chimps, they're so much like humans, it really is like you have children. I mean, it, it's like we've had 34 children in three years, which is absolutely insane. <laughs> I mean, the thing is with, with chimps is genetically, they're very similar to humans, you know, 98.6% roughly. The way that they're most similar to us, I think, is emotionally. You know, when these guys are happy or sad or angry. It's the same feelings that we would have.
We have 34 chimps now, 32 under the age of six, so it's pretty chaotic. You know, the downside, of course, is that all of the orphans in our care have had their families killed, but the upside is that the government does have a law against that, and prior to us being here, they were not able to enforce that law. So the fact that we have 34 chimps means they're out confiscating chimps and stopping people from committing those crimes. The Desmond's chimp family is still growing. And like all families who outgrow their home, they're on the move. Our facilities are, are not what we need. We're trying to, to relocate. That's why we're building the conservation center that we want to build. And we have a long-term lease on some land to build facilities. And we have a, about 40 hectares of forest. And it's all natural habitat. So in the morning, the chimps will just get up and go out into the forest and, and they'll have such a much more natural life. and. We'll be basically moving our family to a new home. <laughs> Have you ever seen your family tree? Maybe you made one in school to show how many cousins you've got. Or maybe you have someone in your family who's into ancestry. It's amazing to see just how many ancestors you have. Two parents, four grandparents, 16 great-great-grandparents, and on it goes, back into the mists of time. Only 10 generations back, you have over 2,000 direct ancestors. 20 generations back, and it's over 4 million. How much of your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother do you think you have in you? How much do you have in common with your 19 times great-grandfather? There's one very famous family tree which you might have seen a picture of. It was scrawled in black ink, a bit messily, in a small notebook in 1837. Thick black lines branch out from a central point, and in sloping handwriting at the top, the words, I think. It was Charles Darwin's first formulation of the ideas behind his great work, a first attempt at sketching an evolutionary tree which put us on an equal footing with the rest of the animal kingdom. The tree of life. 180 years after Darwin's first scribblings, and with gene sequencing and chemical ecology, we now know more about our wild cousins than ever before. Who knows what kind of genetic heritage might have passed down through the years from these distant ancestors. Thank you so much for joining us for the first series of the BBC Earth podcast. If you can't wait till series two to continue your weekly dose of nature, science and human experience, head over to bbcearth.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. We'll bring you all the latest stories and videos from BBC Earth in one place. I'm Emily Knight and I'll be back soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com upgrade. 